0: Produced by the iLab at WBUR Boston.
1: The universe has good news for the lost, lonely, and heartsick. The Sugars are here, speaking straight into your ears.
0: I'm Steve Allman.
1: I'm Cheryl Strade.
0: This is Dear Sugars.
2: Please. Share some little sweet days with me I
1: check my mailbox every day Oh, in the sugar you see in my way Hi, Steve. Hi, Cheryl. So we are going to do one of our two-part episodes. We're calling it The Empty Chair. And what it's about, really, is the experience of living in the shadow of grief, and particularly the kind of grief that happens when a child in a family dies. And, of course, the parents are grieving that death. And sometimes there are siblings that were either alive when the child died or who will be born after the death of that older sibling they never knew. And really, that experience is a very particular one. It's one in which there's joy, you know, there's still a family that exists around that dead child. There's also a lot of sorrow and grief. Mm -hmm. And there's always the presence of that absence. And, you know, in these two parts, what we're going to do is really explore the different angles from which this devastating consequence is is experienced.
0: Well, I mean, as I thought about it, what came up for me, I started thinking about books. I started thinking about Ordinary People, the loss of this older brother and the younger brother. That's a really wrenching novel and film, frankly, uh, where the, the younger brother, the entire family, is completely shattered by this empty chair. And then I thought even more so about The Catcher in the Rye, I think Catcher in the Rye is one of those novels, the wonderful J.D. Salinger novel that we think of as about rebellious youth, teenage years, the difficulty of navigating into adulthood. And actually, as I reread that book, I think it's Holden Caulfield in a state of grieving. Uh, People tend to forget this about that book, but about 50 pages into that novel, we learn that Holden Caulfield's younger brother, Allie Caulfield, has died of leukemia. And I'll just read a little bit because. All that trouble that he has, that nervous breakdown that we witness, that makes the book so wrenching, I think emerges from the very thing we're going to talk about today, that empty chair, that death in particular in, in, for this episode of a, of a sibling. Holden Caulfield says, I was only 13 and they were going to have me psychoanalyzed and all because I broke all the windows in the garage. I don't blame them. I really don't. I slept in the garage that night, he died, and broke all the goddamn windows with my fists, just for the hell of it. I even tried to break all the windows on the station wagon we had that summer, but my hand was broken and everything by that time, and so I couldn't do it. It was a very stupid thing to do, I'll admit, but I hardly even knew what I was doing, and you didn't know, Allie. Mm you know, he is so shattered by this loss that as I looked at that novel and the light of reading these letters, I realized that's grief. This is a guy who, a young man who has been grieving for the direct loss of this beloved sibling who he feels was everything he was never going to be. And I think we tend to do this when there's a loss, especially of a child, they become an idealized figure. And their loss becomes unbearable because they represent, in Holden Caulfield's case, maybe in the precincts of our heart, in all of our cases, the perfect thing that was extinguished too soon.
1: Mm -hmm. We're going to unpack all of that today. Do you want to read the first letter? I
0: will. Dear Sugars, my brother, my younger sister's twin, was supposed to die at birth. He did not. He lived for two years. He could not sit up He could not talk or feed himself, but he had a beautiful smile. He had eyes more blue than any I had ever seen. He lived in medical foster care, and we visited him all the time, and he visited us. My mother has always made it a point to say that she made that decision so that he could get the care he needed and she could give us a childhood. I was five years old when he died. I'm the lucky one. I remember my brother. He was sweet and soft. My sister is not so lucky. She lost her other half when she was two years old. Her birthdays, despite, or perhaps because of, my mother's efforts, are not happy occasions, especially on milestone birthdays like last year, which was 20 years. After my brother died, my mother went on to do amazing things to educate and help others with grief, She teaches about understanding anticipatory grief, the need for hospice for children, and talking through the process of grieving. This has meant that my mother is a godsend to those in her grief groups, her classes, and to those in the field. It has also meant that our brother has been ever-present in a way that has been, on occasion, hurtful. When I left my fiancé four years ago, my mother told me that it was like I had taken another son away from her. I've never quite forgotten the damage from those words. But the real person who faces my mother's grief is my sister. Our mom would never ever intentionally make my sister feel like she isn't loved, but there's a constant reminder that she survived and our brother didn't. At every holiday, I watch as my sister wilts at the table when my mom reminisces about those we lost. My sister's eyes grow dark and she walls into herself. I don't know if our mom has ever noticed. My mom has built her professional life upon her grief, but my sister is forever encased in that. I don't know how to talk to her about it in a way that doesn't make it seem like I'm accusing my mother of being callous. She isn't. How do I broach this? It's sacrilege in our family to question grief. Every time I've tried, the conversation turns into one in which I'm reassuring her that she's not a terrible mother rather than addressing the problem I brought up. Any advice, sugars, I am at a loss. Signed, Forever Grieving.
1: Wow, this letter just went straight to my heart, Mm -hmm. Forever Grieving. I I feel so much for you and your sister and also your mother, because I think you already know that your mother does this because she's suffering. She feels still guilty about your brother's death. She feels a sense of uh this dedication probably to keep his memory alive all of the work that she's done in helping others with grief is is really a beautiful thing she's made she's made something beautiful out of an ugly thing that happened to her right but there is a point right where it's like it's too much grief yeah it's too much love too much grief too much suffering yeah and of course i say that with um with the full knowledge that there also is no such thing you know I have rather well proven that point in the ways that I've continued to yeah. talk and write about my own grief with my mother. And and I know that that um, sometimes seems strange to people, you know, that you can have an experience where somebody died 20-some years ago and there you are making them alive every day. And and so I really think that that's what your mom is trying to do. Yep. And I also understand your viewpoint that it's too much, that in some ways it's thwarting your relationship with her and and also maybe your sister's life and you know all of these things to me are swirling they're very present at the surface of your letter yeah
0: sure i think you put your thumb right on it forever grieving your mom faced an impossible choice it's really like almost like sophie's choice and and i think this is how the choice went down in her head i don't know but i'm speculating based on your letter I have a child who is in grave medical condition. And in order to give my other children life as a mother, I'm going to have to place that child in medical foster care. And I think she continues to feel conflicted about that. And the evidence I would point to is that in some ways, she sees everything through the lens of loss. She does this amazing work. Comforting people confronting the the reality of grief in ways that are unassailably beautiful and transcendent, and at the same time she is emotionally negligent and sometimes hurtful towards her own kids. I realize that she's not callous, I believe you, but in relation to your sister, when her eyes grow dark and she walls into herself, and just parenthetically, Cheryl, you're a great writer forever grieving. you know the mm-hmm. verbs you choose encased walled into herself, those are just the verbs of it, of an a remarkable writer, but when your mother sees or doesn't see your sister's eyes go dark and her wall into herself, she doesn't notice as you write it. I don't know if our mom has ever noticed. And I I think the way that you have to talk about this with your mom, and I do think you have to talk about it with your mom, is really to say, I understand you had an impossible choice, but I also think you continue to see life through the lens of loss, and that's really having an effect on me, and on your daughter.
1: I think the good news for Ever Grieving is that your mother speaks the language of grief. She's a grief counselor. She teaches uh, about different aspects of grief. She's deeply familiar with really the mysterious process and the years-long process that is grief, and I really encourage you to, to reach out to her in that language and maybe even go so far as to enlist a grief counselor where mm-hmm. you can sit down with your mom or if your sister is willing to join you that the three of you can can really share your thoughts and feelings about your brother his life and and also what's come after and i think that there's a way sometimes that we're capable of hearing things when there when there's a professional in the room who can guide
2: right. the
1: conversation it sounds to me like your mom who who really isn't so unlike just about everyone else's mom when it comes to any kind of criticism, really, of the way that she has expressed her love or parented. Your mom's being defensive, her feelings are getting hurt, and she's not able to hear what you're saying. You've got to continue to find the platform upon which you can speak to her in a way that she hears, because I do think she's willing to grow. This is obviously somebody who's uh, willing to engage in you know emotions and feelings, and especially... Feelings connected to grief. And one of the things that, that might be going on here is it might be hard for her to actually make room in her life for your grief exactly. and for your sister's grief. And, and I think that, that one of the ways in with her is to say that you do have grief. I mean, part of this um, always bringing your brother up at the birthdays and the holidays and things is she's saying, please don't forget him. Right, please, let us let him fill this empty chair just for this moment that I'm bringing him up and and maybe, if you can assure her that you and your sister will carry some of that burden that he is indeed present to you mm-hmm. that she doesn't have to that that will just lighten that sense in the room and this is something that I learned a lot in my own life with with my kids. My mom died before my kids were born. they never will know her. And that is a tremendously painful fact in my life. Yeah, And I don't want my mom to be forgotten. I want my my children to have a sense of who my mother is in my life because she was such an important person, but also in their lives. And so when they were little babies, I mean, from the very first time I was talking to them, I was telling them stories about their grandmother they never knew their grandmother bobby for whom my daughter is named and what what happened as i realized as they got older my kids are now um 13 and almost 12 is is that it worked that that my mother is a presence in their lives yeah. that they say things to me unbidden about my mother that they understand the nature of my loss one time when my daughter was like 6 or 7 and we were playing you know that little game like You rub the the genie bottle and you Mm -hmm. get three wishes. And and my daughter said, my first wish would be that my mom gets her mom back. Mm. And it was one of those experiences that it was like as if somebody had just walked up and slapped me across the face. I did not expected I expected her to say she wanted a pony or and, right. and I realized that 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 my daughter, that young, had that consciousness of what my grief meant to me right. but you know what I learned for myself and forever grieving, I guess this is where I really my heart goes out to your mom mm-hmm. is that I learned that I had to lighten the ways that I talked about my mom so that that my kids didn't carry the burdens of grief right. And, I, and so, you know, Forever Grieving, when you say that, you know, your mother at every holiday saying, talking about the brother, she's doing it because she loves her son, and she wants to make him present. And
0: keep him alive, yeah. But
1: what she needs to be told by you and your sister is that she's already done that for you, that he, he, he already is in your heart. And that if, she, if she can trust you to carry some of that weight, she doesn't have to always be placing it on right. every occasion. Good luck, Forever Grieving. Good luck. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me On Point for Elements of Energy. Mining for a Green Future. Five special episodes. Listen and follow On Point wherever you get your podcasts. We're back, and... We're going to call our guest, Jessica Handler.
0: Jessica Handler is a professor of creative writing at Oglethorpe University in Atlanta, and she's the author of Invisible Sisters, a Memoir, and Braving the Fire, a Guide to Writing About Grief and Loss. Her new book, The Magnetic Girl, is forthcoming in 2019. Um, Her story, I think, will speak to to our first letter and the letter that we're going to read her. Let's give her a call.
2: Hi. Jessica? Yes.
1: Hi, this is Cheryl Strayed.
2: Hi, Cheryl. How are you?
1: I'm great. How are you?
2: I'm very good, and I'm delighted to uh, participate in Dear Sugar, so I'm a fan.
1: Oh, thank you. Uh, We are so thrilled. I have Steve Allman on the line with me as well. Hi, Steve. Hi. So, Jessica, we thought of you as a guest for this show because we understand that you actually have lost two siblings. Can you tell us about that?
2: I can. Um, I'm the oldest of three sisters. And by the time I was 32, I was the only one living. My two sisters were Susie, who was my middle sister, and Sarah, who was our younger sister. And Susie died of leukemia when she was eight and I was 10. And when I talk about this, I'm always very careful to express to people that Very often, the outcome of childhood leukemia now is very different than it was in 1970. Mm -hmm. Um, Our younger sister, Sarah, died of a very rare blood disorder when she was 27. Uh, The the illness is called Kastman syndrome. And um, we grew up in a household that was very, very normal. Our mother worked very hard to make sure that our lives you know, had Girl Scouts and birthday parties and the dog and a very normal life. So it wasn't the kind of thing like a TV movie of the week with people sort of dying on a gurney. But nonetheless, I grew up knowing that I would be, as my sister Sarah said uh, in her 20s, that I would be the only one left. Mm. And she was, you know, and and that's right. I am.
1: Now, when you and Sarah, she died when she was in her 20s. How long was she sick?
2: She was diagnosed when she was about a year old, and she wasn't expected to live past her toddlerhood, maybe, you know, two or three years old.
1: But still, it's interesting. I mean, even though she didn't die till you were in adulthood, you actually mm. grew up knowing that, you know, not only did one sister die, that the other was, was expected to.
2: We both knew that, yeah, know, It sort of was something that we were aware of, along with diligently living a very uh, normal Uh, normal life. But it was a shadow. It was a cloud that was around there and she was very often hospitalized. There were a lot of treatments that, that went on. Um, so it was, it was something we were both very aware of. And adding to this is that our father was a social justice attorney in Atlanta, which is where I grew up, where we grew up in the 1960s. So part of what was happening in this household is this awareness that, um, it's our job as people to work towards justice um, for, for everyone. So that kind of adds to that sense of awareness, even as a kid, you know, that there's all kinds of things that are unfair or that aren't right.
1: What about grief? How did your family grieve?
2: Uh, my parents did something really interesting for the for the era, and we're talking about the late 60s here, and I think this is a little bit different now, but they told me about a year before Susie died that she was um, seriously ill and that she wasn't expected to live, and I kind of knew that because there had been hospitalizations and she was on yes. uh, a medication, a steroid that kind of disfigured her a little bit. Um, so I wasn't unaware of that, but the fact that they told me this about maybe a year in advance began the grieving process. But in terms of grieving, um, we had a funeral. Uh, we, I believe we sat shiva. We're Jewish, so I believe we sat shiva for a short period of time, but we're not um, observant Jews. And then we went back to work. We went back to school. Mm-hmm. Um, we didn't grieve a whole lot at home. We were very sad, of course, but we had responsibilities. We had obligations. And, of course, Sarah um, was... Four years old. So, we also had a little kid in the house who needed care. And um, you pick up and you keep going.
0: Well, it's interesting. Grief, I guess, in a certain way, is a kind of overwhelming sadness that's in response Mm -hmm. to an overwhelming injustice. Mm -hmm. The fact that somebody we love would be taken from us senselessly, and especially a child, that's Mm -hmm. an overwhelming injustice if you think about it. That made me want to ask you about the first letter that Cheryl and I discussed before we called you in which the, the mother has lost her child, you know, very young, um, and seems to have really reacted to the injustice of that loss by really throwing herself into grief counseling in a way that, for the letter writer, has really mm-hmm. kept the mom from um, recognizing her children who are still living.
2: Right. The letter really struck me, and it made me think about the death of a child or the death of a sibling is, I think it's called out-of-order death which means that a young person dies before an old person, which is, you know, not, it's out of order. It's not what we expect, and it's hard to talk about because it's kids. It rattles everybody's cage. And I empathize so much with that letter writer because they, you know, they acknowledge that the, the mother is the mother of the deceased child, but that mother is also not acknowledging the fact that there are siblings dealing with this loss as well. Right, right. It's a different kind of loss. You know, I know that that I talked to my mother, my own mother, about our loss. And in talking about that, we started realizing that although we had lost the same person, her reaction to it was somewhat different because she's the mother and I'm the sister.
1: Yeah. And I think that's really, I mean, that's at the heart of what we're trying to to dig into in the course of these two episodes, that... This one, uh, we're discussing that, you know, from the angle of the sibling loss. Um, and then next week, we'll be discussing it from the, the angle of the parent loss. But you're right. It is a, a fascinating thing uh, because it is the same person you lost. But, of course, you have different relationships, different memories, and also different obligations to those people. Um, you know, the parent yeah. the, the parent is responsible for the child, even in his or her death, in a way that the sibling isn't. And yet the sibling feels maybe a sense always of I'm the one who got to survive. And I'm curious about your particular experience. Have you have you felt guilty about being the one who surf- who lived, as you said?
2: The only one left, yeah. The only one left. I don't right. know. I don't know that I feel guilty. I thought about this a lot. I don't know that I feel guilty because to me that almost feels like take me instead. And I I feel that my sisters would not want that. But in the same way, I very often feel the need to live for three people, two of whom are deceased. Wow. And I know better. You know, I know that can't be done and I know that's not rational. But there's this desire to do for them what they can no longer do. Yeah.
1: So we have another letter that we'd actually love to get your your uh-huh. feedback about. Okay. Dear Sugars, my twin brothers were born about two months premature in the 1970s. Both were in the NICU, and sadly, one of them passed away after about three days. I was two years old at the time, and I have no memory of it happening. My parents told me their story when I was six years old, and I remember going once or twice to my brother's unmarked grave on Memorial Day. It feels very strange that an event that happened before I started making memories had such an impact on our family life. I feel guilty for getting sympathy from people when I tell them I have a brother who died. One time I asked my mother if my younger sister would have ever been born if our brother hadn't died, and she said, probably not. My surviving brother used his twin's name as his own son's middle name. Just this year, my father told me that he believes the baby's death was the beginning of the end of my parents' marriage. Most of all, I wonder about the impact it had on my mother— She told me that she never got to hold our brother, and that when he died, his body was taken away before she saw him. Friends who have had stillbirths or infant losses these days are able to hold their babies, dress them, and have footprints as keepsakes. When I've mentioned this to my mother, she thinks it sounds morbid and disgusting. What must it have been like for her to care for one baby while grieving the loss of another? Now, as a mother of three myself, including one preemie— I have a hard time relating to the way my mother handled her grief. Part of me feels that her mental health struggles and my father's substance abuse are in part because of unresolved feelings about my brother's death. As I've healed from my own childhood and mental health struggles, I've come to realize that they did the best they could with the tools they had. Even so, it mostly feels like my brother never existed and that I wasn't allowed to talk about him. His grave is still unmarked. And I sometimes feel the urge to get him a headstone, or at least go visit him. But it feels like I'm breaking some unwritten rule. What would you suggest? Signed, O oh, Brother. hmm
2: You know, O oh, Brother's story really, really resonated with me. And I've got what I hope is a suggestion for them. But I learned a few years after Sarah died that no one put a headstone on my sister Susie's grave. And Susie at that point had been dead for maybe 30 years and no one had been to the gravesite. And then when I went there and memory took me to where I knew it was in the particular cemetery, and I was stunned to find just a depression in the grass. So, you know, ultimately I got my mother's permission and my father's stead. They were divorced to go ahead and put in a gravestone. Mm -hmm. Um, So, and I've done it. And in reading this letter, that really, really struck me because I just wanted to say to Oh brother, Oh brother, I feel you. I feel you. Um, and I'm curious if the letter writer, if O brother, knows why no gravestone was ever installed. Yeah,
0: I'm just curious because as you were telling us that y- your sister didn't have a gravestone, what was their reason? Why was that never? You know, was there not visiting to the gravesite? It sounds like it was like an we erasure. Didn't
2: visit. Yeah. No, we didn't visit. And, you know, a lot of people do. And, you know, in the Jewish tradition, you leave pebbles uh, when, you, when you go to visit. But we never did it because we were moving ahead with our lives. And also because I think for my parents, it was, and perhaps in the case of O'Brothers' brother's parents as well, it's just too hard. You know, you're talking about the invisible grave. If you look at something, you make it visible. So my deduction in my own case is that it was just too hard, too emotionally hard at the time um, for them. And I really commend O Brother, you know, for being aware of how their mother must have felt, caring for one child while mourning another. Um, But they're also a parent, right? O Brother is now currently not only a sibling but a parent. Right. Right. She's
1: a mother of three, she says, yeah. Oh
2: yeah, so she can almost look at this empathetically from both angles, and maybe that gives her the ability to tell the parents that that she wants to honor the brother, and maybe to even honor them and what they all went through when he died, because um, that's kind of what I was feeling like was nobody had the emotional ability to commemorate this child who died, but it's enough time has passed and I've been made aware of this and now I think I have the emotional strength to do it so I'm going to do it. Right. So maybe maybe that's the place where she can come in.
0: Yeah. Uh, and I think in some ways trying to disappear the loss is in fact leaving children, the siblings, with the residue of of confusion. Why did my father start to get into substance mm-hmm. abuse? Why did this marriage break up? It really, that code of silence, that kind of omerta around death, just causes the, the surviving siblings to be deeply confused.
2: A lot of marriages break up. I don't have the statistics, but it's a, it's a good amount of marriages. Break up after the death of a child, which then leaves the surviving siblings with an additional yeah. problem, which is not only has a sibling, siblings died, now the family is broken up as well. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot to carry around with you as you grow up. Um, with forever grieving, too, they um, were clearly concerned about their mother and. I hope that they acknowledge to the mom how she's feeling, and are still able to claim how how they feel, because it, it seemed to me that they were afraid of alienating their mother, of losing their mother, which is another loss, right?
1: Right. Well, and I also want to say, oh brother, you know, a piece of this is certainly that that the way we grieve has changed over time, even in a generation, yeah. and there's no question that. Uh, dying at at three days old, being born premature in the 70s uh, was different um, than it is now. First of all, we do have a lot more, you know, medical advancement and technology that that gives preemies a a greater chance of surviving. But even when they die, uh, we have a better way of consoling people and we have more resources for, for, for people who experience that particular kind of loss. And, you know, I... Remember, I, I was born in 1968, and I very distinctly remember uh, as a child that this this feeling around death was silence. That right. you know, you move on and you don't talk about the difficult things. And and you know, I see this, and my mother in law is is died last year. But you know, I remember she was very uncomfortable with talking about death because. She'd been told all her life it was a subject to avoid. So, oh, brother, I wouldn't be surprised if if your parents got that message too. And also on top of that, they were in this situation where they lost a baby who was three days old and they had another baby who survived. This was a twin who died. So I think sometimes the sentiment of consolation was, was to deny it, to say, well, at least you got one good baby. Let's, you know, that was tragic. That thing happened, but onward we go. And don't dwell. Right. And I think that that's a really dangerous one when it comes to grief. Um, because, of course, we have to dwell in order to heal. We have to dwell in order to honor the people we loved who are gone now. And, and I just want to say to you, oh, brother, that you get to do that now. You know, you don't have to have permission from your parents to honor your dead brother. If a gravestone will mean something to you, I encourage you to do it. And I also want to say to all the people out there listening, who you know, who love people who don't have marked graves, you know, I don't think that that's uh, necessary either. I mean, that's not the right. only indication that you care about a dead person. There's no one way to grieve. And what that means is you have to figure out, oh, brother, what's meaningful to you in your life— when it comes to your brother. Yeah. All right. Thank you, Jessica.
2: Cheryl, thank you. Steve, thank you.
0: What a pleasure to talk with you.
1: Bye-bye.
2: Bye-bye.
0: Hey, Dear Sugars Nation, please tune in next week. We're going to do our second part of our series, The Empty Chair And we'll talk about a couple of letters from parents who have lost children and are also struggling with how to care for their living children. dear sugars is produced by the new york times in partnership with wbur our producer is alexandra lee young our editor and managing producer is larissa anderson our executive producer is lisa tobin and our editorial director is samantha hennig we recorded this show at argo studios in new york city with paul ruest our mix engineer is josh Rogerson. our theme song is by liz weiss and other music is by the portland band wonderly Find us, please, at nytimes.com slash dearsugars. And please send your letters to us at dearsugars at nytimes.com. That's dearsugars, plural, at nytimes.com. And if you want to read the column every week, we answer an additional letter on the topic that we've discussed on the podcast. You can find that at nytimes.com slash thesweetspot. That's on Tuesdays and on Thursdays in the style section.